But we're going to entertain you now with a big conversation on this central question, what if America has gone too far into decline to come back? Question mark required. Now, that was posed at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas last weekend, and we're about to bring you a recorded version of that discussion with a terrific array of guests, with Adam Tooze. He's an historian and economic commentator who regularly hits the headlines, as you've probably seen. His chart book, Substack, has made depth economics sexy, and he certainly thinks bigger. Ruth Ben-Geard is an historian too. She's based in the US, where she's regularly interviewed. She's made a specialty of examining how illiberal leaders over time have used corruption, violence and machismo to stay in power, and and they're still doing so. And Nick Bryant is well known to Australian listeners. He was a distinguished BBC correspondent in the US with a doctorate in American politics. His book, When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present, apparently made it onto Joe Biden's bookshelf to Nick's great delight and hopefully to better book sales. And his journo podcast produced with the Judith Nilton Institute is required listening. So uh, we'll take it away. Might we in Australia be watching the uh, fall of the United States, particularly uncomfortable for us, given that we've banked so much on its reliability for our security. That's where we started with the festival guests giving us all a good welcome. Now, look, the question we are going to wrestle with today is whether the US is reaching some sort of tipping point into irreversible decline. Um, And we really will wrestle with this. And I want to ask you first, Adam, is that what you see happening or not quite? I, 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 I think on this topic, I'm sort of torn in two different directions. On the one hand, at the level of politics, congressional politics, the electoral system, the development of politics also at the state level, which is crucial to understand in the US. It's such a huge entity um, that the developments, say, in Texas are very telling with regard. I'm sure we'll talk about them. At that level, I think it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that it's an increasingly dysfunctional, indeed dangerous system, as Ruth has been been alerting us to. But then if I put my other hat on and think in terms of functional structures of power in the world and how they operate, whether you look at the tech pillar, if you like, or if you look at the military pillar, or if you look at the bit which concerns me most directly, finance and the dollar, American power remains, you know, almost through its crises, it tends to be reinforced. So you could think of Ukraine as a failure of deterrence, and what happens, it reaffirms the position of America as the military provider of last resort. You can think of 2008 as a catastrophic failure of the North Atlantic banking system. What does it do? It confirms the Fed as the de facto central bank to the world. 2020 underwrites that again. So there's a way in which failing for lack of alternatives demonstrates America's indispensability, but at this functional level. And I think maybe one way of describing the crisis is as a gap between what you might think of as like political hegemonic functions, in other words, providing meaning and cohering everything, the way America did around, Mm. you know, the Marshall Plan, for instance, or in the Kennedy moment, or even in the Reagan neoliberal moment, you could say there, there was a kind of charismatic hegemonic project. The gap between that, which now I think is quite fundamentally ruptured, I mean, Biden's no Kennedy. He, Biden was at Kennedy's inauguration for crying out loud, right? Uh, that's how old he is. Like, the, 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 there's a gap between that just sort of increasing absurdity of the political dimension in the US and, and the persistent functional logics which tie not just Australia, but the Europeans, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, into the American system. And that might be one way of thinking about our current crisis. 
Yes. Um, it's sort of vaccinated. I read one uh, quote, I don't think it was from your writing. It's almost as if America is vaccinated against its own decline through some of these, these structures. Um, and, and, we did, and we certainly saw that in all the January the 6th, the, um, the congressional hearings. We saw those remarkably heroic individual behaviours by people, Ruth, didn't we? Yeah, it's very moving. And um, I actually uh, was interviewed twice by the January 6th committee. And as a first-generation American, I was incredibly proud to have been asked and to do this. And I wrote a report for them. And they were extremely well-prepared, had all the big picture, knew what the risks were at the largest level. Um, and I, I'm always thinking, you know, when I see the hearings and the reports about um, what's going on, that we wouldn't have this if we weren't in a democracy. The places I study, you'd never have a January 6th hearing. It would be impossible. And I think that we're in this... It's been a whole learning curve how um, America was not prepared for the Trumpian assault on institutions, and they didn't see what he was until perhaps it was too late. But the resilience of, for example, the military, um, they, he was, they were trying to get the military to have like a, uh, you know, to play his little coup attempt game. And they've refused, and so we're in a learning, it's a learning curve. And it's very um, heartening to see how um, institutions are stepping up and understanding the risks. And Biden's actually, um, as opposed to these strong men I study who think they have all the answers, they don't consult with anyone. Biden is a very consultative president, and he's convening uh, historians, econ economists, all kinds of people all the time, because we're in like a real-time uh, learning experience of how to protect democracy, um, how so to be that strong. that certainly doesn't sound like irreversible decline. No, and I think the resilience, and what Adam said, um, never, you know, there's, there's always a surprise. Uh, some people thought that uh, Biden would never win. And now we see in, in reaction to the, what's going on with abortion rights, there's a huge surge of, um, of voter registration, of sensitization by women and men about the rights that you could lose. So things are ongoing. It's a very dynamic moment, and that's, that's not um, decline. No. Okay. Now, whereas, Nick, you know, your book title doesn't really leave a lot of doubt as to your <laughs> thoughts, uh, you, think it, you think it has gone past a point? Uh, I do. Um, the American humorist Andy Rooney once said, he said, America's always going to hell, but it never quite reaches it. But my concern at the moment is it's getting closer and closer. And that's been a process, really, that's been going on, certainly, at a quite a rapid rate for the past 20 years and, and a slower rate for the 30 years before it. Um, and my worry now is, I was a very reluctant American declinist. I, I adore America. Um, I found in America a place that I felt far more comfortable in than my homeland, in, in Britain, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, not least the sort of dynamism, not least this, this wonderful idea of social mobility. I really did buy into the American dream. And I kind of lived a form of that American dream myself. My dream was always to report on Washington for the BBC, and I managed to do that. And, and that was a great privilege. But I, I worry now that we've moved beyond decline and we're talking about dismemberment. I, I worry that we're talking about two Americas and, and those two Americas never really being able to come back together. I mean, I was stood 50 yards away from Joe Biden 
when he delivered his inaugural address. And I mean, the three words that we remember it for, a democracy has prevailed. Um, a statement uttered out of relief than any great sense of triumph, but it was three sentences that define his presidential mission. And, and they were all about bringing the country back together, um, a reunification project. And, you know, very soon afterwards, it became clear that that reunification project was, was bound to fail. And it wasn't only the fault of Biden. There was no president who could have delivered a, an inaugural address that day or carried on a presidency that would bring America together. And that is my great fear now, and we can talk about how it's divided. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons is you've, you've got two parties now, and one is committed to democracy and one isn't. Um, and that's a, that's a real worry and, and, a, and a huge worry. And one of the reasons I'm back in Australia not reporting on America there's no shared truth anymore. Uh, and I really, I was offered the chance to stay in America to keep reporting, but I really didn't want to spend the next four years arguing with Trump supporters about who'd won the 2020 election. No. And when you haven't got that shared truth, it's very difficult to have a united country. And I don't, uh, just because I know you love American history, you know, like FDR could have surely given a speech that would have drawn people together. I mean, is it right to say that no American president, that what, who, nobody who lives now, you think, you could imagine with those techniques to do that? Is that what yeah. you mean? Um, I don't see how anybody has that capability of bringing together a country that simply cannot agree on a truth, um, which like the, is manifestly like obvious. Um, you know, we can talk about all the historical reasons why FDR managed to do it. There wasn't the big... I mean, one of the reasons why FDR managed to bring the country together was that he managed to bring the Democratic Party together. The Democratic Party at that time was this strange amalgam of northern liberals and and southern segregationists. And one of the big polarizing things that happened in America was uh, the divide that was always more intense within the parties is now between the parties. And that happened in the 1960s after the 1964 Act. All these southern Democrats became Republicans, which was historically anomalous because the Republicans were the party of mm. Lincoln. The Dixiecrats. Um, FDR managed to bring America together partly because he, he managed to bring it, his party together. And you know, the, the, the stark differences between the parties now is one of the big problems. Adam. But doesn't that imply that really to think of American unity is really it's an anomalous effect of the very crazy co configuration of American party politics post-Civil War, right? That because it relies these great moments that we think of as where America was the powerhouse hegemonic force, let's just take post-45 as that moment, is one in which you can stack economic policy, global power policy, cultural hegemony and a solid domestic power base on top of each other. But that depends, uh, as either Katz Nelson has shown, right, on this completely perverse alignment between northern liberals and southern segregationists. So you just take what is, a, in fact, a massively divisive society, one which systematically excludes 15 to 20 percent of the population from enfranchisement in a most egregious way, and build a party political fix for that. To call that the United States seems to me to you know, be itself question begging. And right now, America, American politics accurately reflects what is and always has been an incredibly polarized, starkly divided society. And I, I think that's the key point. You know, division has always been the default. Yeah, and yeah but, but now it's, but something has happened uh, to change this in that Trump it was a kind of authoritarian cult leader. And he, he's really, some of you will laugh at this, uh, but I, he really is one of the most skilled propagandists of the early 21st century 
People think he's a clown or he's lazy. He's, he knows what he's doing and he has created, think about the big lie. What a genius thing. Um, not only it, it was self-serving, it didn't work for him, he actually had to leave, but it allows anybody now to just uh, be a little Trump, a mini Trump, and ignore elections. And it also kept his personality cult going because it prevented his, lead, his followers from having to accept that he lost the election. So he has, he has weaponized division and polarization to a degree and created this cult uh, authoritarian-style uh, bond with his followers and with the Republican Party, which he's totally domesticated. It's, 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 it's unbelievable what he's been able to do. It's just for context, a lot of people who have had that degree of um, intense bonding, they created the party, like Mussolini created a party, Berlusconi created a party. Trump came from outside to this mm -hmm. grand old party and in four short years completely domesticated it. Um, by using authoritarian discipline, imposing. So much so that, I, I'm sure some of you know, you're not allowed to have any internal dissent in the Republican Party anymore. And some of the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump in February 2021, they had to buy body armor because they were being threatened. So there's a kind of a junta climate now in terms of political, you know, violent threats inside the Republican Party. So when you've got that, those authoritarian dynamics, the kind of polarization is a whole other thing. It, it doesn't relate. It, it comes from history, but it's morphed into something else. Actually, just before we come to you, Adam, uh, Bill Crystal, the conservative commentator, made a very interesting point on a webinar I saw here the other day, which really made me think. He said, you know, people think of the word fascism with a capital F and very much, you know, in the, in, the, in the vein of Mussolini and Hitler and so on. But actually, his thesis was that fascism was, with a small f, was fundamentally a clever shapeshifter that it, it shifted to populist need and it's brilliantly adapted its message. So far from being absolutely sure that you could look and say, well, that's what Trump or others think, there's a constant adaptation which makes it extremely difficult to rebut. Uh, did, I mean, does that, uh, do you think that's a reasonable assessment, Adam? Well, I think the fascism reference point is interesting because was, was fascism decadent or declinist politics? And I think the, the, my answer to that would be almost certainly not, right? Because fascism addressed, in its own terms at least, two major historical features of the early 20th century world. The experience of total war, which was absolutely definitional for fascism, and what was understood to be, by groups in society, a fundamental and dangerous revolutionary challenge. And fascism, if you define its structural position, is the politics that answers those two questions. And my question, and it really is a question about America's current situation, is how does this ferment of far-right politics in the United States relate to structural questions which are analogous to those in the interwar period? I mean, A, clearly there is no American experience of total war. Instead, there's a fascination with America's experience of the forever wars, right? The yes. tactical gear, the special forces stuff. That's not fascism, that's something else. It's militant, it's military, but it's not the fascist model of men and women, rank and file, hundreds of thousands of people. It's actually almost antithetical to that because it's too individualist, libertarian. Yes. But it's there, but it's not the same. The, the, this is what, one of the poignant things is the bipartisan system, which was supposed to be a force of stability, mm -hmm. and Americans would turn their noses up at all these 
these multi-party systems and like places like Italy where the government can be dissolved easily. Well, it turns out that if you want to beat back um, extremism, you know, having a multi-party system can be useful because look what we are. People like Liz Cheney and who are moderates who are getting, they have no home now. And it, it's been a big problem. I mean, there was an attempt recently to start a third party um, including former governor Christine Whitman, but it didn't really go anywhere and the media didn't really cover it much in a serious way. So we're, we're kind of stuck and, and it, it makes it much more difficult to overcome the polarization and, um, and give people who don't want to be what, MAGA Republicans, Trumpist Republicans, extremists, they don't have anywhere to be. There's been a very interesting essay recently talking about um, the rise of contempt in social media particularly, but, that, that, but broader than that, in the, the popular discourse is full of groups contempt for each other. And the, the word contempt is a very strong word, I think. And I wonder whether that is a way to, un is that what helps us to understand what is underway between groups? in the United States, these incredible divisions. Like, I don't know whether we fully understand it in Australia, to be honest, and I just would like to hear what you think about that. Um, um, one of the ways that I think you can explain the paradox of this New York billionaire becoming a working class hero in the Rust Belt was this idea of contempt and, and a shared sense of victimhood. You know, Donald Trump could speak to those white working class people in those huge rallies in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and appear before them as the victim of the same East Coast liberal elite sneering. And I think that explains some, at least some of the visceral connection. Uh, but was that true them. at all? Was that true? Um, Could you was, feel that? It was for his audience and Trump manipulated that so brilliantly, as others have done in the past. I mean, you know, Trump managed to bring together a kind of demagogic tradition in America. Uh, that came from people like George Wallace, the, the Southern segregationist, who was really phenomenally successful, not just in the South, but in the North as well. His last presidential bid was cut short when he was an assassination attempt, left him in a wheelchair. And he was doing really well at that stage. He had a million more votes than George McGovern, who ended up becoming the presidential nominee. Anyway, Trump managed to combine that demographic tradition, I think, also with a kind of authoritarian tradition that runs through American politics as well and, and sometimes was used by surprising figures in history. Lincoln, for instance, um, suspended habeas corpus. FDR tried to pack the Supreme Court, what was interpreted as a total. And he managed to fuse those things together. Um, and one of the things that gave him this glue was this idea that we're victims of, of an elite, of a government, mm -hmm. of a deep state that's always working against you and, and always working against people like you and me. Ruth? Yeah, one of the biggest scams of uh, people like Trump um, is uh, this kind of faux populism where uh, they're talking about the globalists and they're inventing these enemies um, and trying to be for the heartland. And, you know, nobody's a bigger globalist than Trump. His entire business model was licensing his name, besides money laundering for Russians and stuff, but <laughs> licensing his name around the world, right? And Ivanka, well into the Trump administration, Ivanka was getting trademarks from the Chinese, from other countries. She had like 16 countries. She was, so that's, 
that's, you know, corruption. But this faux populism where Orban, they all do it, all these far-right people, they pose as the defender of, you know, national traditions, of America first. And so these, these du people who are duped, um, you know, the MAGA hats, everybody puts on their MAGA hat, which was brilliant, the, the tribalism. You have the hat, you have the chants. They were made in China, right? <laughs> that's true. All of this stuff was made in China. So, so that's, that's very compelling, though, and it's also, I find that very sad because I, I look at all the times in history where people were duped by people promising, you know, to put national interests first when instead, in the, in the meantime, you know, they're supported by a global offshore finance system. That's the other part of this. Yes, right? it's just that you hear people these days, I can't remember who it was the other day, sort of saying, sorry. You know, hearing, you're hearing it in lyrics, you're hearing it in commissioning, you know, there's a sort of a sense I detect from the East Coast saying, my God, we've got to hear this and we've got to find a way to persuade people from the Rust Belt that we don't think they're contemptuous. You know, yeah. there's a real effort underway. I, don't, I just am trying to work out how real it is and whether it'll last, and does it matter? Well, you, you do. One of the things that the research shows, uh, both people who work on authoritarian cults, people who work on disinformation, and people who work on cults, like other kinds of cults, is that when, when somebody's in a disinformation tunnel, the impetus may be to cast them off because mm. it's too hard to talk to them. My own mother was radicalized during the pandemic from watching RT in, in England. And you, you couldn't, she became like a super white nationalist. You couldn't talk to her. So, so I stopped talking to her and then I thought, well, that's silly, you know better. You have to keep talking to them. Um, and that's what all the research says. And, and in talking to them, you are doing the opposite of showing contempt. Quite. And right? what's, happened to you? what's happened to your mother's views? Well, RT was kind of banned for a while, and so she, <laughs> right, she went back. An no, but she was actually—it was really scary and, and and difficult for me because I work on this stuff like professionally. And she said to me one day, you know, because she she got this hatred for Biden, which she who she liked before, and she said Biden's not doing anything Putin wants him to do, because she'd been led by RT, RT. To, to this is the Kremlin playbook that you see the world through the eyes of what's best for the Kremlin. And so she's drawn back. So, but the contempt thing's very important to bring up because the more people feel shamed and, and humiliated by elites or by others, the more they're gonna be taking a refuge in their disinformation yes. tribes. That's, that's what the research says. Adam. I mean, I, 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 I know quite well the, this, this sense of um, tension within one's own family, which makes it difficult to avoid speaking in terms of people being duped. But are we, are we really persuaded that that's the, the dynamic? Or, or is it not in some sense, it may not be a direct acknowledgement of a reality, but is it not actually a fairly frank acknowledgement of the reality that in fact Americans do hold each other? You know, the Americans have contempt for each other. Um, More than say in the UK? What you well no, in fact in some ways it seems quite recognisable to me. In some ways you could simply say it's the politics of class articulating itself in a rather backwards kind of, you know, kind of inverted kind of way because obviously he's not, he's not, he's not an obvious choice as a working man's hero, except that a liberal, a liberal cultured, educated um, Americans do have contempt for Trump. And so there is, as it were, just an affinity between groups which see themselves entirely correctly, entirely accurately, 
as being on the wrong end of a cultural gradient and this guy who's on the wrong end of a cultural gradient, but at least he's rich and successful and has glamorous wives and what's not to like. And, and so that's the structural alignment. It isn't that he represents working class America. It's just that he represents working class America's perception of itself as and quite accurate, an entirely accurate perception of itself as culturally marginalized and, uh, and um, looked down upon by, by liberal elites. Um, and so to that extent, it seems to me a kind of, I'm not sure whether I would describe it as duping, as a, but there's also a sort of playful element. I'm not sure how many of them really believe all the bullshit. I'm sure most of them can read the label made in China on the back. They know that's the case and all the other goodies they've been enjoying also come from China. But that's not the point. The point is to wear a hat, which makes liberals crazy. Yeah, and, and it really and, works. And, and I don't definitely. think there's any dupery there. Like it totally works. It really horrifies and pisses off the idiots that voted for Clinton. That's, that's a great question. To what extent do people believe the bullshit? And I think that's something that we've seen a real shift in, especially during this primary season. I mean, we've seen 20 years of, of moderate Republicans being displaced by sort of more conservative Republicans, and then those more conservative Republicans were replaced by really radical Republicans. And a lot of those radical Republicans didn't believe the big lie, but they had to politically because they didn't want to be primaried by some Trump-endorsed candidate. But I think one of the really worrying things about this primary season is how we've got big lie true believers now. Right, okay. um, and we've not only got big lie true believers winning primaries that gives them the chance to get into Congress, we've got big lie true believers taking over some of the electoral you know, the, the, the mechanics at the state mm. level. You know, the US Constitution, alas, gives so much power to state assemblies in federal elections. And that power now is being seized upon by these big lie Republicans at the state level. And that is such a danger to US democracy. Okay, look, I mean, the paradox is that, and this is where I'd like to finish up, is that in, in some ways, globally, America's just never been more strong. It's the big supplier uh, the most, as you've been writing about, Adam, of um, armaments to uh, Ukraine. It's made a huge decision, you know, to absolutely, if the Ukrainians are prepared to fight for their country, they'll, they'll back them completely. Um, they're probably more capable of being self-sufficient, vastly more, if at all push came to shove than China, vastly more. So it, it's odd which you've alluded to earlier. You've got this amazing level of power on the one hand and solidity, and this is an important thing for Australia to talk about. And then you've got all of this incredible brittleness that you're all describing. Is this the polycrisis that you love to write about and that, terrify us about? That's one of the reasons I've adopted this concept, is that it does seem to... I mean, and, and part of the multipolarity is, after all, well, does have to think other countries as part of the story as well. And America is very fortunate right now in its antagonists. I mean, I mean Putin, after all, has handed them the destruction of Russian military power, the humiliation of, of Russia's claims to be a great power on a plate. Now, it took courage on the American side to say, right, we're going to risk nuclear escalation. We're going to pile in here. I'm sure a bunch of people sat around saying, and we will not be able to forgive ourselves if we do not seize this opportunity. So, yes, there's risks, but let's do it. And we'll, you know, no one knew the Ukrainians would be the hammer and the anvil that they've turned out to be, right? So, and on the other hand, they're also dealing with, with China, where the apparent invulnerability has, has, has really cracked, right? In the last couple of years, we've seen a series of moves which suggest that Beijing does not have the all-encompassing technocratic grip, which many of us imagined it appeared to have. So they've gotten lucky in that respect, and that's a dynamic that we also have to, we have to figure in. And the Europeans are just 
incredibly slow to play their own, up to their own potential. So America is left almost by default um, as the organizing anchor of the system. Like, why are Germany and France and Britain and Italy not able to supply Ukraine with the weapons that it needs? These are not very sophisticated weapons. Mm. We just don't have the stockpiles. We're supplying Bushmasters. Yeah. We're very so, crap. Exactly. And the, what, those are like souped-up Land Rovers or yes. something, right? They, <laughs> they, they want more of them. So, but, but you but, see what but, I mean? Like, this, yes. We cannot deal with the American story in isolation it, it is part of an interconnected system. But the point is it's working. What, it's, I suppose this goes back. That does not, again, suggest um, terminal decline. It, well, because these, these pillared power structures, I mean, the Trumpites talked in terms of the deep state. Again, they're not entirely wrong. Right? There is indeed an apparatus of power in the United States, which was hell-bent, essentially, on limiting his, abal- his ability in its terms to blow the whole thing up, which included decisions like, can we please pull out of Syria? Can we please pull out of Afghanistan? These were entirely legitimate decisions a president was making that the American military were hostile to. And so those, func- those mechanisms, they continue to function. Um, and and that, 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 the, the fundamental question, I keep repeating it, is as it were how those are articulated with the true believing big lie folks. There, that is not going to work, right? Those two things are not going to align at some point. Climate change, for instance, is actually going to be an issue. Well, Nick, could they get to the point where, you know, you you bring on your worst fear? You you do push, 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 um, and suddenly some of those pillars do fall over, and you've got a very, very different society. Would that terrify them back? into, into, into realising there are consequences for playing like this? Oh, look, I think you do have two Americas right now, and that's being codified in law, um, after Roe especially. You know, there's going to be an America where you can legally get an abortion and an America where you can't get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we've seen sociologically over the last sort of 20 years or so is the big sort. People tend to congregate with like-minded people. We tend to talk a bit as red and blue states. It's not as simple as that. Some of the biggest divisions are obviously between the cities and the countryside. Um, and I wonder whether the best that we can hope for now is, is just a state of, of peaceful coexistence. I, I do worry about the threat of political violence. Again, there's a long tradition in America of political violence that we tend to sort of airbrush out of the country's history, but it's there. Many of the people on January the 6th were literally shouting 1776. They believed themselves uh, to be acting in the noble spirit of the American Revolution. And that is, is deeply problematic. I mean, some people talk about the analogy with the Troubles. I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate because I don't think we're going to be seeing American troops sort of patrolling the streets of You majors. don't think that? I don't think we'll be seeing American troops patrol the streets of an equivalent of Belfast as they did during, during the Troubles that we had in, in Northern Ireland. But I do worry about the flashpoints. I do worry that they can turn violent. I mean, elections is one. Controversial Supreme Court decisions is going to be another. Controversial verdicts in trials like the Carl Rittenhouse, that vigilante who was found not guilty, another potential flashpoint. I I really do worry about that, especially with the proliferation of guns. And and one really quick point is, if you look at political polarisation, it really maps closely with income polarisation in America. That, you talk about a missing middle in politics, there's a missing middle in the economy. 
And, and those two things really track closely over the, over the last few years. And yet it's a remarkable to me, as an, as an interviewer, how little American guests want to really talk about that. Uh, so that they want to do all the political analysis and this complexity, and they don't want to talk about that missing middle, which is a much more favoured part of an Australian discourse, I think you'd agree. I mean, or, or class. We're not, they no, don't, nobody right. talks about class um, in, in the States. It's not, it's not done. So it's not no. done. No. So inequality, is it, rising to, is it rising up as part of this? Are people wrestling with this? I'm not sure they are. Well, I'm, I'm not an economic anal analyst, but um, you know, 2019 was a, the year of a global record for protests around, around the world. And a lot of those protests were about economic inequality. Um, and as in Chile, the, Chile, that they had the biggest protests since the 1980s under the dictatorship. And Black Lives Matter was predominantly about racial justice, but with 20 million people involved, it becomes about other things. Mm. It becomes mm. about institutionalized racism's economic uh, effects. So um, I think there are other ways in the states that um, protests against ec economic inequality get expressed. Precisely so, because we don't have a mechanism to talk about it openly and talk about class. Well, is it because there's also a revulsion at talking about too overly wealthy people? That's the impression I get, that richness is still something, you know, to become wealthy is, is pretty impressive, which it is in many ways, but it can, go, it can go too far for the cohesion of your society. I get the impression that's still a tricky topic in the US. I mean, you could almost say that inequality is a way of not talking about class, right? Because the two things are not the same thing. And that goes back to this point about the car dealership and the Trump voters. Because if you do the inequality numbers, it's evidently not the case that the poorest people in America vote for Trump. It's the poorest people in America are single black mums, right? And there's a lot of them, and they are deeply impoverished. And they America got Biden has some in. of the poorest people in the... And they, of course, don't vote Trump. Most yeah. of them don't vote at all. And if they are going to vote, they're going to vote Democrat, right? The people who vote Trump are, in fact, a layer of white, working lower middle class and upper middle class people that sit in the band in between, that's where the, the votes come from, right? And because that, the yeah. wealthy people are 1% of society, so they don't generate a voting base. Is there any hope then? Can you offer any? Are you, do you see breaks to these log jams you've all described so beautifully, Adam? Well, I'm not sure we should hope for a reconstitution of a unified United States. I mean, I'm actually quite because historically it's rare, it's unusual, and we've absolutely no idea on what terms it would be unified at this point. So some sort of functional disarticulation, this modus vivendi, which you described quite nicely, between different parts of America with crucial, sustaining, integrative power functions maintained both for the United States and the rest of the world. For me, that's probably as much as we can reasonably hope for. Ruth? I, I, I agree at present. It's, it's, it's just not going to be possible. In fact, what Adam's saying is, you know, there are plenty of politicians, the, the Trumps and the DeSantis, who would like to have a, you know, national unity, right? And they've succeeded in demonizing others, and so Democrats are now political enemies. So um, I think that, yes, the best that the best that can be hoped for is a, a semi-peaceful coexistence. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank our guests today?
And that was uh, Adam Two's Ruth Ben-Giet, Nick Bryant at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. A full recording is on our website because there was more. And I want to thank Hamish Camilleri who ensured such good sound.